Peace and long life, and welcome to the Inner Light Project for our second episode. My name is Preston Prince, and with me I have... Nathan Tolley. Doug Bailey. The Reverend Derek McCarson. <laughs> Beautifully <laughs> said, Derek. This is true. We, we are here in our second episode of the Inner Light Project to bring you a roundtable discussion of various sci-fi and pop culture elements, all from a Christian perspective. The name of our podcast, uh, as we've said previously, is drawn from the Star Trek Next Generation episode entitled The Inner Light. Uh, And each of us sitting here are proud men of faith who attend church together where Derek is pastor. And we are unapologetic nerds, each with his own strengths that complete our inner circle. Uh, Derek, of course, is the expert on all things Tolkien, and he is our resident theologian, uh, while Doug and Nathan are our comic book and Star Wars experts, and they will be uh, taking over a lot of our conversation today. And to complete the circle, all of the Star Trek questions do go to me. So in this episode, we will be discussing the Marvel Comics universe, and uh, we're going to specifically be focusing on Iron Man and how it and how all of this relates to comics and from a Christian perspective. So, Nathan and Doug, what do you have for us? Um, well, I, I figured I'd start out with um, just a little bit of information about the first Iron Man movie. And, um, well, Iron Man uh, came out May 2nd, 2008. It was directed by John Favreau. Um, it wound up, in the box office, it wound up making $585 million by the end of it. And um, I got the plot here I'd like to read. It says, uh, a billionaire industrialist and a genius inventor, Tony Stark, is conducting weapons tests overseas. But terrorists kidnap him to force him to build a devastating weapon. Instead, he builds an armored suit and escapes his captors. Returning to America, Stark refines the suit and uses it to combat crime and terrorism. Um and I just got some, calling them fast facts. Facts, fast. Um, fast facts. Number one, um, this is the first film set in the MCU. Um, start of the whole franchise. That's what I thought, because I thought it came out around the same time as Incredible Hulk. Yeah, I think Incredible Hulk came out, like I think it was the same year. Does just... Incredible Hulk actually count? It does. Okay. It does. <laughs> that's a lot of tie-ins. Yeah. Well, because that's <laughs> another discussion for another day. Because some would say it doesn't. Um, Poor Edward Norton. <laughs> um, I liked his version, though. I'll go yeah. I yeah, he was cool. Um, got another fast fact for you. Uh, the Mark I armor that he built in the cave actually weighed 90 pounds. So, Robert Downey Jr. had to put all that on him. Oh, so you're saying the costume? Mm-hmm. Uh, not yeah. talking about just like the movie? No, not in the movie. Just but like just his, the actual costume. The actual, yeah, weighed 90 pounds. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got a third one here for you. Uh, roughly 450 separate pieces make up the final Iron Man suit. Um, the costume, basically. Okay. Um, you're still talking about the the Mark One. Yeah. Oh no, no, the the final one, like uh, Mark in game, Mark three. Okay. Yeah. Four. Oh, in the first movie. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. We're gotcha. still on the first movie. Okay. We're still on the first movie. <laughs> um, 
And then um, this is this is a, actually a pretty fun fact. Um, other people that were considered for playing um, Tony Stark um, was Sam Rockwell, Nicholas Cage, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, John Krasinski, and Tom Cruise. Interesting. Did not know that. That is a very interesting list of. And now it's actors. hard to imagine anybody else playing that role except Robert Downey Jr. But I mean, it was like he was born for that role. Yeah. I mean, could it, you imagine the Nicholas Cage? I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, first it was Superman yes. in the late '90s. I mean, didn't it? it I, I even remember seeing a picture of him in costume. In like suit. that's how yeah, far yeah. they got. His testing. Yeah. There's yeah. actually a documentary you can watch. They've got some okay. footage of Nicolas Cage in the Superman costume. How interesting. <laughs> yes. Because it was... Yeah, uh, I have seen that. It yeah. was Tim Burton that was making the movie. Now, that would have been an interesting Superman movie, just with Tim Burton directing. I, I'm trying to picture... <laughs> I can't even picture him as Superman. I don't care how they do his hair. <laughs> I couldn't picture it. He was Hen- great in The Rock. Hen- Henry Cavill. They got it with him. Oh, he was yeah. born for that role. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, and I believe Robert Downey Jr., if I can talk, Robert Downey Jr., I believe this was one of those roles you could say he was born to play. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, absolutely. I could maybe see Sam Rockwell pulling it off, though, because he's an amazing actor. He could have done it. So, what else you got? Um, well, also in the first movie... Um, they, you know, his enemy in the movie is the eventually becomes the Ironmonger, and the Ironmonger first made his appearance in Iron Man number two hundred. Now that's one thing I was curious about, Nathan. Not to interrupt you, but um, like how how this um, how the movies tie in with how the comics were written, and you know what um, what was consistent with the comics, and you know what. Played by Jeff Bridges in the movie. Yeah. Yes. Correct? Yes. Um, probably there. The problem is, is you know these comics, they're thirty, forty years old or whatever, and it's hard to you know they're trying to basically take one movie and take stories from two hundred, three hundred issues, and just trying to. Because I mean, like I said, it, it was two hundred issues before the Ironmonger came out, and yet that's the main villain in the first Iron Man movie. Okay. So. I mean, it's like the, well, like the Mark One armor. It was, uh, yeah. First Tales of Suspense, number 39. And for those listening, Nathan is showing us really cool covers. Uh, we apologize. Y'all can't see it through audio because <laughs> since this is radio, not television. Uh, but uh, we will uh, certainly post these on our social media. That way you can uh, see what we are seeing right now. Yeah, and this also brought. I mean, I know they're they're side characters, but they're still important characters. The first appearance of uh, Pepper and Happy, and their first okay. appearance was Tales of Suspense uh, number forty-five. Pepper and Happy were actually a couple yeah. to start off oh. in the comics. That's interesting. So, with me not having the knowledge of all of the background coming from the comics, you know, I go in knowing. You know, pretty little, very little, and I see the movies, and me, I'm wondering, okay, how much of this is from the comics, and how much of this is fabricated by screenwriters who are just trying to put 
a story together for the movie. So that's interesting that they're pulling these things um, from the comics, updating them, and then tailoring that to their particular story that they're trying to tell. Right. Well, they go back, the comics go back to the 60s, early 60s. So what year was this um, Tales of Suspense? This, uh, this one 64, was... 64, wasn't it? 64. I believe so. Yeah, because the first appearance of Pepper was uh, 1972. I forgot to write that on the first appearance there. Um, I'd never heard of Tales of Suspense. That's actually where a lot of the comic book characters got their first start. Okay. Um, like Thor. That was his first appearance was Tales of Suspense. Uh, huh. Hulk. <clears throat> I mean, of course, Iron Man. Um, it was just, That's where a lot of them appeared. They use that tagline like for those comics too. I think they used it to test out ideas, okay. and they say, "Oh, we'll, we'll put them out to tell us of suspense and see how they do." And they just took off. It reminds me of like uh, the Judge Dredd comics. Like I always thought it was Judge Dredd, but it was 2000 AD, and then he was part of that comic franchise. They yeah. pulled him out of it. Yeah, yeah, he was pulled from the 2000 AD. So that, that's what it reminds me of here. But again, I'd, I'd never heard of the Tales of Suspense. That's very interesting. Well, see, before they started doing superheroes, they were actually doing horror comics, like scary okay. comics back. Uh, but Stan Lee, he wanted to um, kind of get away from that, and mm -hmm. he wanted to try to go for superheroes. Or, oh, interesting. I mean, I guess there was no superheroes back in the day except for maybe like Superman. And Batman. Batman. Yeah. yeah. So we had the DC and mm -hmm. then he was wanting to do the same thing with Marvel. Yeah. He wanted to put heroes out there for kids to look up to. Yeah. Okay. Not fear. Yeah. Nice. Um, another first appearance, and I, I didn't even know he was actually in the comics, um, was Agent Coulson. Because uh, he made his first appearance in. Okay, Iron there's a familiar name. Yeah, and I've never even heard of this. Uh, it's called Shattered Heroes Battle Scars, and apparently, uh, he reveals himself. He starts out as like a, a, like an assassin that Nick Fury has kept secret, of course, and he finally makes his appearance in that. Now I had heard Nick Fury was directly. Uh, Designed, drawn, derived from Samuel L. Jackson. No. Uh, no. 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 Okay, so the internet is not pure truth. Well, All right. <laughs> I read it online, man. <laughs> now I, I I don't remember where I read it. Um, it could have been you know some article from uh, one of the many you know things that I come across, but I that was that was originally my understanding of Nick Fury. Well, he. Originally, they did it that way for the, the MCU of today. Okay. They decided to use his likeness so they could draw him into the movies, and then he made his way into the comics okay. of the Nick Fury. But the Nick Fury was actually, you got I'm sure you got yeah. a picture. Um, they actually, let me, let me tell you this, um, they actually drew the character first. They got Sam Jackson's permission to make him look like that, and he was like, yeah, I'm totally cool with that. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Nick Fury originally started out, um, well, as a white guy. Okay. Um, I mean, he was a he was actually a soldier. You catching that reference there? Howling Commandos. Howling Commandos. Yeah, yeah started, Sergeant I mean, Fury. This was his this was his first appearance. Was uh, 
Sergeant Does that Fury have and... a connection to Captain America? Yes. Yeah. Well, if you look at this guy with the hat. Oh, yeah. He's in the first Avenger. Oh, hat. yeah. <laughs> How funny is this? Okay. Um, they, they really masterfully tied in all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what's interesting, too, about this is you get this from the comics, and you they build it with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but there's a lot of overlap in the villains between Iron Man, Spider-Man, Thor and yeah. you know so on, so they all kind of fight the same oh, yeah. Yeah, the mean, same villains. But yeah. um, that that crossover doesn't take place later on in in mm-hmm. into the Marvel uh, movies, but in the comics they're all fighting yeah. each other. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like, well, perfect example is like um, with Spider Man. You know, Spider Man made his first appearance a long time ago in his own comic, but then his first issue of Amazing Spider Man. Uh, he was uh, the Fantastic Four made an appearance because the Fantastic Four are a little bit older than Spider-Man, so that's how they started crossing over a little bit as they start going. An interesting side fact, you know, we most everybody's seen Endgame. Yes. I, may, I'm, I'm, I know I'm like spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> Maybe may a spoiler. The final armor he has, the nano armor, the one he actually. Uh, used to fight Thanos and got stabbed and all that was stolen. It was a stealth armor and it got stole by Doom. Who's from Victor Fantastic Doom. Four, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. And you see, uh, there it was a stealth nano armor and you could change color. You see Doom with the with the silver armor on and the green cloak. That was Tony's last armor he wore when he died. Doom stole it. In the comics and wears it. Interesting little fact. That is it. Yeah. No. Those are well, those are cool, cool little that's tidbits. Um, I guess another first appearance that they that they introduced in the movie was uh, James Rhodes, Rhodey. Uh, he first made his appearance in um, Iron Man number one eighteen. Um, and he becomes Iron Patriot, right? That's later. Okay. Actually, no. He doesn't. Actually, he doesn't even become Iron Patriot in the comics, but in the movie, in the third one. Um, we'll get to that later. <laughs> we're we're jumping the gun, but that's okay. It's okay. Um, Let's let the conversation flow. Yeah. Amen. I mean, pretty much, he didn't. James Rose didn't become a War Machine for a while in the comics. I mean, it was at least another almost two hundred issues before that happens. Okay. Because I'm I, the way I remember it in the movies, it was around Iron Man three, when I guess you could say he becomes War Machine or he at least it's the, the end of I'm, two, right? Two, yeah, yeah. they have that big battle and it's been a yeah. long time since I've seen two. But when you said that, I remembered that now. Yeah. Iron Patriot, yeah, was the name they brought out in, in three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, any other? I found some really cool villain crossovers in Iron Man. Uh, I, I thought some names y'all might have heard. Yeah. Norman Osborn. Oh, Spider-Man? Yes. yes. Ah. Oscorp. Uh, of course, we talked about Doctor Doom. Another little neat crossover uh, is in another MCU movie. I know this one's Iron Man based, but these are in uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp. The ghost. Mm-hmm. Remember the lady that mm-hmm. played the. That was actually a suit of armor that Tony had made. 
That well, it was a made to fight him. I'm sorry, it was one of his villains made him to fight against Tony, mm-hmm. and that was actually a ghost armor. That was one of the villains that was originally to fought him. Okay, Ultron, of course. That's the second Avengers yeah. movie, right? Let's see here, Aldrich Killian, which he was actually his company, uh, AIM, which was a. What advanced idea mechanics was a branch of Hydra. Oh, okay. So does he make a appearance in one of the movies? Isn't that from three? Yeah, three. three. Yeah. Yeah. He was the one that Guy Pierce played. Yeah. You see gotcha. him at the beginning. Yes, yes, yes. He uh, yeah. he gets rebuffed on the uh, right. uh, uh, hotel. Yes. Uh, tower. Yeah. Right. Gotcha. Yes. And he comes up with the whole chemical that you know, I really thought was a great villain was Justin Hammer, and he was just he, he was well played. He plays a, a pretty decent role in the comics. Like he, I mean, you you hear about his, especially just the, the Hammer Company, mm-hmm. um, because apparently there's a whole group. Uh, you might have some information on that, Doug. Well, I know his uh, first appearance was in Iron Man 120. I don't know if you have that one, and it was 1979. Yeah, 120. Wow. Nice. Some of us were not born yet. <laughs> Hey, I just said some, <laughs> I, you know. <laughs> and you know, Justin Hammer, he definitely has like a massive role. He's always like on Tony's heels, so he's chasing him. It's essentially like capitalism. There are two companies fighting. You got Hammer Dynamics and Stark Industries going head to head, which you know, I like the way they did it in the movies. They still got they in the comics. Hammer's a lot smarter than they played him out to be. They really dumbed him down in the movies, I thought. But we'll have to see where it goes. I really enjoyed it, though. I liked Rockwell's version of him. Well, it's almost like his his technology was like a cheap knockoff of Tony's mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, you know, we kind of branched out into... We're kind of bouncing around all the Iron Man movies, but the Mandarin... The character in the movie was totally different from the comic book. The Mandarin in the comic book was the leader of the Ten Rings. And you remember in the first movie, they had the one, they kept him in the original cave when he right. built the first Mark I suit. And the guy come out and said, I'm the leader of the Ten Rings. He had the bald head. He shot yeah. the missile at him. So... Really, the Mandarin is a leader. So, and they don't bring up the Mandarin until Iron Man 3. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second because I'll, I just want to get y'all's feel on this. But I kind of felt like the Mandarin, in as they had him built up in Iron Man 3, and then you get the revelation that he's just a sleazy old man. Mm. I thought that was a big time letdown for me. Well, that's that's why I think that's why Iron Man 3 is like, of the of the trilogy, that's the worst of all of them. Um, because I think it also had something to do with the fact that John Favreau didn't direct it. Mm-hmm. He, was, he just made oh, an appearance. Yeah. He stepped down from, cause he did, he was tired of directing at the, at the time. And, um, he stepped down just to play happy in it. And they had a new director. Um, actually, I think I have some information. When, for me that what you were saying, Derek, about the Mandarin, uh, from some of our, co- 
most recent conversations, my perception of the Mandarin was Iron Man 3. I knew nothing about what you guys had told me recently about it. And so for me, it, it kind of changed my perception. And I agree with you, Derek. That is, that is kind of a letdown when you learn how that villain was drawn out in the comics mm-hmm. and, yeah. and how they had developed that character on the comic book side of things. Yeah, like the, the re- they got the name the Ten Rings because he had a ring on every finger. Mm-hmm. And each one has a certain power. Okay. He could actually shoot. Uh, he had an ice ray out of his one ring. I can't think of the ring. Not his ring finger, point finger. Mm-hmm. Um, he can mental telepathy. So the original battle, what made him face off against Tony, he didn't want Stark Industries starting in overseas in Asia. He was going to put another factory down there and make weaponry. And he was trying to stop him. So he actually is very honorable in the comic, and he wanted to fight a duel against Tony. And he says, if I win, I take over Stark Industries, and I'm moving it out of Asia. But if you win, I'll I'll step back. So they fought. Tony beat him. So he stepped back, but he created a villain, so to speak. Interesting. Yeah, I felt like they dropped the ball with the man, and they could have done a really cool exposition with him, really built him up. One thing we've always talked about in our in our own banter about uh, comics and the movies, we all know that the villain makes the movie, right? Oh, yeah. Because uh, yeah. the, the, the hero is only going to be as great as the opposition that he faces. And so um, one of the weaknesses that um, you hear a lot of times people talking about in some of the Marvel movies is that the villains are pretty weak or they're one-dimensional um, and they're not really drawn out very well. And I felt like that was one of the Achilles' heels in Iron Man Three is that the Mandarin just wasn't didn't live up to the hype. Mm. It was As, like we uh, wanted the Mandarin, but what we got was Russell Brand. Yeah, <laughs> that, you know, that's that was because when you heard him using his normal voice, that's where my head immediately went when mm-hmm. I originally saw that movie. Well, see, they totally they totally messed with you in the trailers too. You know, they like oh they, yes, and they showed like you know those foot the footage and everything of him being the Mandarin, but they never mentioned anything. I mean, of course, because that was a total shock when you're sitting there watching it in the theaters. That oh hey, this guy Marvel's way. This this guy is yeah. just a actor. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, we know another neat fact. Well, they didn't. I thought the way they they didn't touch on Obadiah Stane in the first Iron Man. He was such more of a. He was a lot deeper character than where they played him out. Um, and in the comics, he had a son, Ezekiel Stain. All these biblical prophet names. Yes. yes. And he was also a genius, a tech genius, and he ends up being, you know, a villain to Tony Stark and Iron Man later on. He produces his own armor, and he has, but I, I'm pretty sure I put, yeah, he was a... Uh, he leaned toward bioweaponry. So he come out with suits of armor, but they look almost like a World War II oxygen mask. They had the tubes. He had different different gases to... It was kind of like it reminded me in um, the uh, Captain America. Mm-hmm. No, no, sorry. Sorry, wrong movie. It was uh, Wonder Woman. The German... Lady technician built the gases that could bust the glass oh, and stuff right. like that. Yeah, that was his little thing. What he did. Well, and that's the neat thing about how some of those movies tie into certain historical 
types of things, oh, yeah. like with Wonder Woman, with the First World War, and uh, you know, and, and even how the movies, uh, or going back to the, how the comic books were written, the comic books kind of go along with the history of the time they were written or maybe a little bit before. And then when you see the movies, it's almost like they do the same thing with what, with modern type issues and, um, you know, touching on some of the things that we may be seeing around us in the world today and using elements from the original comic books to pull into that. And still give you the little, the little Easter eggs to the, you know, the fans and still, but the stories are so much bigger. The comic book stories yeah. are so much bigger, and they got so much to draw from. They really do a good job condensing it into a three-hour movie or a trilogy, you know. It's kind of like a discussion we had about Tolkien, you know, The Hobbit and all the Lord of the Rings movies, but you could never film The Cimmerillion because it's just, it's too big. It's Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Derek is our first yay vote on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, uh, Preston, you were talking about, you know, they're, they're, they basically brought everything to today. Uh, same way with, uh, I mean, just Iron Man in general. Uh, mm-hmm. He, because his, his capture was during the, the Vietnam War. So they updated it for 2008 to the War on Terror. Yeah, like yeah. the because I think you they took said the words like right the, out of my mouth, Derek. Yeah, because or whatever. Because it was a um, terrorist cave. Yeah. You know, it, Middle Eastern type of yeah. setting. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's just like, well, Iron Man 3, with the way they did the Mandarin, it was just, it wasn't really so much the Mandarin as it was a media threat to the public. Yeah. Or or almost, I don't know if I'm saying the right thing here, but it was almost like using an idea to the idea of the Mandarin. Yeah. You know, there there were the few people that knew what he was really like behind the camera lens, but they were using the idea of the Mandarin and and painting that picture around him you know we could create terror exactly yeah Yeah. you know they they painted that picture so what they saw was that picture they didn't see all the other stuff that went behind it and the way he uh the way he was bouncing aldrich kelly and he was bouncing he even said in one of the lines in the movie i'm gonna have a president in one pocket and the world terrorist in another and i'm gonna Mm. play them off each other and he's gonna reap all the benefits that's interesting. There's, there. You could even, you could, you could make historical connections to that, you know, of people throughout history trying to play one person off to another, and, and Derek, all that. our historian, here. <laughs> historian and theologian. So, <laughs> where are we at? We've kind of bounced around a lot. That is okay. I got Nathan off topic. Yeah, I'm, I'm just... I'm, <laughs> no, that's fine. I'm just, well, how about, you know, we didn't talk about Whiplash. Well. Um, that, well, that is in Iron Man 2. Sorry, that is No, it's fine. <laughs> um, well, his first... Whiplash is actually first appearance in the comics. And also another thing about Whiplash Tales is, of Suspense, 97. Um, is actually... He was created... Uh, this is what Whiplash originally looked like. He used a whip. It wasn't like the one in the movie. They actually combined two different um, characters. Um, is this Mickey Rourke's character? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, it was also um, Blacklash. Okay. Well, Ivan, what is it? Ivan Banco? Banco. Banco. Well, he was actually um, a villain of 
Iron Man's, he actually had his own type of suit of armor, sort of like Iron Man's. Uh, but it was his dad, uh, Anton, was the was the villain. His son didn't really come into the picture later on until like the 2000s in the comics. Um, hmm. But that, So what they did was they pretty much took his dad's armor and combined it with this other character called Whiplash and kind of made a new character, basically. So it was the same way they did in the movie. Ivan took the... His dad had thought come up with the arc reactor mm-hmm. design, yeah. and Tony's dad, you know Howard, they all in the movie they all kind of worked together, and he took it and kind of pushed him out. And that's what made him mad at him, mad at the family, and he took the arc reactor technology and made the whips, which was a really good character in the movie. It was, I, I liked it, the way he did it. That's neat. I, I remember learning that was around the same time Mickey Rourke was filming for The Expendables, and. I, one of the little Easter eggs between those two movies is that if you look at his hair, it's exactly the same in The Expendables as it is in Iron Man 2 because they were both filmed at the same time. I, I, I think if I read right, he did that on purpose. Nice little Easter egg from the yeah. Star Trek, man. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe he had to go back and forth. Right. He was, the, his his, his uh, Iron Man job was was the, uh, was the his cover story for the work he was really doing with the Expendables. <laughs> <laughs> or it could have been the other way around. Um, and then here's actually uh, just a small Easter egg, I guess, for in Iron Man 3. Easter egg or a fast fact? Easter egg. Okay. Uh, uh, the man, the the fake Mandarin. Um, he's a you know he's wearing the rings just like the real Mandarin does, but you know they're just props basically. Well, if you notice, one ring that he's actually wearing on his pinky is actually the same ring that um, I, I'm gonna say it's is it Raza, the, the bald villain in the cave. That in the first Iron Man movie, I think it's. Oh, that, I know what you're talking about. The pronunciation mm-hmm. of all. Yeah, Raza or Raza. Raza is because it's R A Z A. It's Raza, whatever. Uh, but he's wearing uh, the real ring in Iron Man One, like an actual oh. Ten Rings ring, uh, and so that was kind of like a cool little. I guess I don't know if they did that on. I'm sure they did it on. Purpose. Kind of a nod to the to, yeah. yeah the actual yeah Ten Rings the original one. I remember he went parts when he was thinking if Tony's working he was spinning it. Yeah. On his pinky. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. They put that on um, his character in, in Iron Man 3, even though his, his was fake. But the, uh, Raza was actually part of the Ten Rings in the first movie. So that was kind of a little cool Easter egg. Interesting. Nice. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, just, I, just, I was just reading here um, on my notes. Um, Crimson uh, Dynamo. Dynamo mm-hmm. and Whiplash. That's how they. That's how they came up with that character, of the Whiplash in the comics. I mean, in the in the movie, it was Whiplash and Crimson Dynamo. They combined the two, plus Anton's armor. But. That's cool. Well, folks, we're going to take ourselves a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to dive deep into the Christian and theological connection. So stay tuned, and we will be right back very shortly.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Inner Light Project, and we're going to be continuing our discussion of the Iron Man movies from the Marvel franchise. So, uh, and we're, now we're what we're going to do is talk a little bit about the uh, theological Christian perspective and connections that uh, uh, that we're able to draw from these different movies. So, um, Derek, what do you have for us? Well, there's several different themes that we can touch on. Um, but let's just start with the origin story, the uh, Iron Man movie from 2008. So one of the most obvious connections that I see there in the beginning is the theme of crisis bringing change. So one of the things that makes Tony Stark so relatable to the audience is that he's a pretty flawed character, especially in the first movie. He's uh, sarcastic, Mm -hmm. he's selfish, he's arrogant. He describes himself as the genius billionaire playboy philanthropist, I think, in one of the later movies. (laughs) Verbatim. (laughs) So outwardly, he's very successful, um, but really, at his core, he's a man that has everything and nothing. And the first movie sort of opens that up and lets you see that. Um, When we first meet him, he almost perceives himself to be godlike um and during especially during the weapons test scene in the first iron man he stretches out his arms and drops the bombs and of course the mountains explode behind him and um in fact i think he actually names the weapon jericho yes jericho he does missiles, which, yes. which of course is a connection to the city in joshua chapter six that um, God helps the children of Israel defeat and causes the walls to fall down. Interesting biblical connection there. When when his arms were spread like that, that was kind of a feeling I got when I was watching that part. Was he's he's putting his arms out as if he's godlike, but at the same time he's the one in control of all of exactly. it. He, he's yeah. even controlling the the explosion and and try and at the same time as a businessman just trying to trying to sell himself and, and how powerful yeah, the he theatrics is. of it making yeah, the, there, making that's the, the right word yeah. yeah so this theme of crisis brings change so that's how we meet Tony Stark and in the beginning he doesn't understand really how his weapons are creating death and destruction around the world maybe he does understand it but he doesn't really care um, just care more about the money. Right. So it's only when the caravan that he's in is attacked and then he's taken hostage and he's in the cave and now he begins to see how his creation is bringing evil and death and destruction on the world Slap because, reality. because the weapons oh, yeah. now fall into the hands of the terrorists, right? And mm-hmm. So it's in that captivity where now he has to rely only on himself. He doesn't have his money, um, his comfort, his connections to powerful people and so on, his technology, it won't save him in there. And so the cave experience is kind of a moment there, it's a gut check where he can reflect on his life and the choices that he's made. And of course there's an older mentor in the cave with him that kind of helps him to understand what's really a priority in life. I always thought that Speaking of that, you would think of that as like the Holy Spirit. He was always like trying to guide him in the cave. Well, Tony, you know, do this with your life, or how is are you gonna change 
what you've done so far. Well, see, so yeah, you have the older man who's... Legacy. Yes, helping him to evaluate his life. But interesting to me, I kind of feel like in the first movie, in the beginning, we see Tony Stark stripped down to nothing. And they use the same theme again in Iron Man 3. You'll remember in the beginning of that movie, he loses everything, including his, his home and all of his uh, high-tech lab, and he... He crash lands in that podunk town. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember where it is, but his suit malfunctions in Iron Man 3. And so there again, he has that identity crisis where he has to kind of realize who he is again. and mm-hmm. Back to and, basics. Yeah, so they yeah. kind of use that same trope again in the third movie. Um, he's definitely more humble, and he, right. he even described himself as just the mechanic yeah. in that one. So, But here's, <laughs> here's where the connection really comes. So... In our lives, we are so many times not ready to deal with our own personal sin or the hurt that we have brought on other people through our decisions until we are cornered into a crisis. And our pride, our health, our resources in that crisis are stripped from us. And the reality is that the great crisis that we go through is the agent of change that makes us reevaluate ourselves and reevaluate our lives and how we're living. We see that in the Iron Man movie, um, but that's a, also true in life. Most people don't make changes and don't seek after God when things are going well, when they have plenty of money in the bank and they're healthy and everything's going their way. It's only when God allows the props to be kicked out from under them then people begin to realize, what have I based my life on? What's my identity? What's my legacy? What choices am I making? Are they bringing good to people or are they bringing harm to people? So uh, none of us really plans for the calamity, but when it does, it it's actually can be one of the greatest forces of transformation in our lives. So I was glad that they used that in the movie because it's only when you're in the cave, quote-unquote, that you have time to reflect, repent, and realize our own sinful flaws and our brokenness. And they use that in the movie in a very powerful way because Tony comes out of the cave a different man, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Um, so, of course, biblically, the scriptures are full of examples of all kinds of people who were humbled by crisis. So you could think about Jacob. Um, Genesis chapter 32, he wrestles with God, wrestles with the angel of God in chapter 32, and he comes away crippled. And his name is changed from Jacob, which means trick, trickster, to Israel, which means prince of God. Um, so there's an example. David, of course. In, Saul in, in the cave. Second Samuel 16, David is uh, exposed for his adultery and his murder. He has to repent in Psalm 51, and he changes, and he has to live with the consequences of that. Or you could think about Nebuchadnezzar, powerful king in the book of Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 4. God humbles him and makes him live as a beast for seven years, and he ends up proclaiming the greatness of God, this pagan king. Uh, Paul in the New Testament goes blind because he's struck by the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he obviously becomes a changed man and becomes the greatest missionary uh, of the early church. So that theme of crisis brings change. You see it there in the early chapter of uh, Iron Man 1 
where it's the crisis that really makes him into the hero character, as flawed as he is. Um, so without that cave experience, he wouldn't be the hero that he becomes, yeah. right? Yeah. And wow. so we can see that parallel in our own lives, how um, the crisis in our own lives, whatever that may be, is usually God's agent of transformation in our lives. You guys got any thoughts on any of that? I was just going to say that in I feel like that in many ways, what you were talking about, the crisis bringing change, parallels Robert Downey Jr. as a person. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, even I... I you know, those of us and those of you listening who were who know anything about '90s pop culture and anything that Robert Downey Jr. had been in or was doing at that time knows full well that Robert Downey Jr. had had a very rocky, uh, very uh, to put it lightly. Uh, yeah, that's putting it very mildly uh, because of the the legal back and forth with things that he had done uh it, back in the 90s when he was younger and then by the time iron man was filmed and, and he it, it that it was almost like he had finally had gone through that redemption process uh however that was that he did it personally i don't know the details but i i just know and i think i remember reading that it took him actually going to jail over the things that he had yeah. done yeah. for him to finally get that, that dose of reality. And it was there that he finally made that decision to, uh, to come clean and to improve on things. We'll see. And going on that, um, you know, I read you guys that list of all those other people they were considering and all that stuff. Well, John Favreau, he actually he wanted Robert Downey Jr. He said, "I want him, like above all, I want him." Mm -hmm. So they took a, a chance on him. They told John Favreau, they said, "Well, if this bombs, this is all on you." Oh, okay. And so he took a chance on Robert Downey Jr. and the rest is history. Hmm. <laughs> wow. I mean, cool deal. So another interesting theme that I saw. It's very obvious in the first movie as well, and it continues through the series, is the theme of a new heart. So, of course, one of the hallmarks of Stark's character is the, the arc reactor that's embedded in his chest that um, he creates to stabilize the fragments of metal that are um, close to his heart, so they keep the, the, the shrapnel from going deeper into his body and killing him. And so that's, a, that's an interesting picture because here you have a, a hero who's capable of great things, and yet he's also broken. His heart literally is corrupted by this metal that's poisoning him from the inside out. Um, he lives in the shadow of death all the time, right? Because if the technology fails, I mean, he's a dead man. And they explore that a lot um, in the movies. And so were it not for that technology... Um, he wouldn't have made it. So I think that's an interesting picture because the Bible, that's how it portrays all of human nature, that we're fallen and that our hearts are corrupted. We're poisoned by this thing called sin. And, of course, when the Bible uses the term heart, it's not referring to the physical organ that pumps blood through our body, but it's, it refers to our soul. So the heart in the Bible is the soul. It's the the seat of the mind, the will, the emotions, it's the moral compass. Now, the Bible, of course, has a lot to say about 
humanity's heart condition. Jeremiah seventeen nine says that the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? In the early chapters of Genesis, uh, at the time of Noah's flood, in Genesis 6, 5, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, he said, Out of the heart comes all of evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So it's interesting that the Iron Man comics and the, the movies focus in on that picture of, um, of humanity through the heart. Humanity is capable of great good, great compassion, love, uh, empathy, um, selflessness, beauty, the arts, being able to create, all of these things we can do and invent as, as human beings. But at the same time, we're also capable of terrible evil and ghastly, horrific things that we see down through history and every day in our newsfeed. So, you know, you have the picture of Mother Teresa on one hand and then Hitler on the other, and it's all bound up within our human nature. And that's an interesting image, I think, that they, that they portray through the character of Tony Stark, where he's a hero capable of great good, but also his past... <laughs> checkered past that he has to repent of bringing all that death and destruction on the world and of course that's symbolized through his heart which is corrupted and in need of change so uh, interesting though the bible talks about that we need a heart change we need a heart transplant and ezekiel 36 26 the bible says that God will give us a new heart and a new spirit. And God says, I will take out of you the heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. Of course, uh, David, when he repented of his great sin in Psalm 51, he says, create in me a clean heart. And so, of course, that's where the gospel comes in. And the gospel addresses man's sin problems and gives us forgiveness and a new nature. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So... I find that a very provocative picture that comes out um, in the Iron Man character and that uh, we all have to have that heart transplant if we're going to become the people that God wants us to become. I think the way uh, it's beautifully broke down, Derek, uh, I like the way like in the first Iron Man, you know, you see him, he's fallen, and when he comes back, his past started catching up with him in the form of Obadiah Stain, and I think it's very interesting. They use the name Stain, like you know, Stain oh, yeah. of Sin, mm-hmm. and he's chasing down. He's the pure evil. It's like his pure evil part of him was coming back, saying, "Oh no, come back to me. We need to get you back into doing ironmongering." And you know, so well, it's temptation. Yes. Yeah. So interesting connection here with um, Obadiah Stain. So in the Bible, there's a minor prophet by the name of Obadiah that God raises up to pronounce judgment on a nation of people called the Edomites. And if you know anything about Bible history, the Edomites are a descendant of Esau. And Esau is the older brother of Jacob. who They're born twins in Genesis chapter 25, and they come out striving, and Jacob has a hold of Esau's heal. It's a very well-known story out of the Bible. So it's interesting that they select that name Obadiah for the foil against Tony Stark because if you go and you read the book of Obadiah, a tiny little minor prophet book, if you go and read it, it's 
not good bed- bedtime reading because <laughs> the whole book is about how God is going to bring destruction and wipe these people off the face of the earth for their treachery against God's people. So it's interesting that they select that name. I don't know if they knew where that was coming from, but you can see how that would also connect back to the Iron Man story because here's this guy who is, if he follows his voice, it's going to bring death and destruction back into Tony's life again. I don't think it's an accident. When when the, these stories were written, these comic books, they definitely, a lot of the people that wrote these had a, they were heavily, you know, seated in the gospel. And you, you can see that when the stories are written. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've got a couple more themes here. Do you guys want to touch on these? Oh, um, let's go for it. Did anybody have a comment you wanted to say about the heart? Anything you wanted to throw in there with that? Just that uh, when you were you were talking about Obadiah Stain, the it it represented to me the uh, the the opposite end of what Tony wanted to do after he discovered the the um, his weapons the, were being used exactly. Right. He and when he discovered that things that he had made and he had a specific purpose for them and then he found out what was going on with that and then finding out that Obadiah was part of that it you know re- again represented that corrupt side and and I'm with you Doug like I I don't think it was just a just a random um choosing of that name whether it's for the comic books or or, or the movie you know it, there's there's many other franchises too not just comics where names like that were chosen for those reasons so another thing too with that that just came to mind is so when Tony makes that big turning point in his life and he wants to change right he wants to make his life count for something meaningful and good and if you've ever done that in life or you have somebody that you know who's tried to turn that corner maybe they've dealt with addiction and they're trying to to, to get clean or um, maybe they're trying to escape a, a broken home situation or, or whatever it is that they're facing in life, and they're trying to make that change. There is always that person from your past who will come back and confront you and try and bring you back oh, yes, into yep. the old way of living. I mean, that's just that's a that's a great connection and but that's true in your spiritual life as well and and mm-hmm. if you're trying to serve the Lord and trying to live by faith and trying to uh, make a break into a new kind of lifestyle. You will always have somebody from the past or from the lifetime lifestyle you're trying to escape, like crabs in a bucket. You know, you got the it's, one yeah. crab trying to crawl out, and then the others pulling back down again. Yeah, it's always you know somebody in your family. Right. Everybody experienced that. Well, I know what you did when you were 16. Oh, yeah. You're trying to say I'm doing something wrong. You know, it's same story. Yeah. So but, I have. Um, I've had family members deal with um, drug addiction and they would get clean for a little bit and then they would relapse. And one of the trigger points of the relapse was friends. And so the only way that this individual got clean finally and was able to turn the corner in their life was they had to completely remove themselves from that context and from that location to get away from that friend base. So your mom always said, you know, it's the friends you hang out <laughs> yeah. with. Yeah. Well, my wife and I recently had a conversation kind of, I guess kind of on that subject cuz she was bringing up someone that she knew uh and the the point being that 
you know, if it's either a drug addiction or, or something that you're trying to come out of that you're, you've been facing in your life and you're trying to turn your life around. And one of the, one of the things I've always believed is, um, you know, anyone can, can overcome those hurdles. But for us, when you, when you decide to make that change, you accept Christ and you, that's only the first step and it's no guarantee that things get easier afterwards right. uh, for many people, especially in hard. that. Yeah. Especially in the situation Derek was talking about. I, I feel like for people in, in those shoes, uh, it can become much harder afterwards. All right. The great insight there guys. Um, but another thing that I see in the Iron Man movies is the idea of a hero with scars. And so I'm pulling this from Iron Man 2. There is a great line, maybe my favorite line of the whole Iron Man trilogy, and it's spoken by Whiplash, Ivan Vanko, and he's plotting in that movie to try and take down Tony Stark. And he has this line, and here's, I'm going to quote it. He says, if you make God bleed then people will not believe in him. And I think that's a fantastic line from that movie. By the way, Preston. <laughs> oh, here we go. I kind of feel like that Vanko maybe acquires that conviction from watching an old Star Trek yes. episode. Oh, the yeah. episode that I'm thinking of is called The Paradise Syndrome. Yep. And if my memory serves correctly, in that episode... Kirk and company land on an Earth-like planet, and they revive a child with uh, resuscitation, mm -hmm. and it causes the natives on that planet to think that Kirk has godlike powers, right, like the right. power of resurrection. <laughs> yeah, and so later the medicine man or the chief or whoever approaches Kirk in the episode, and I don't know if you remember, he cuts him. Yep, and to see if he bleeds, and he cuts him on the hand, and he does, and then later the chief makes the statement, behold, a God who bleeds. And do you remember that? I do, and <laughs> what's funny is there was an... I mentioned this in our last episode, the, the Next Generation episode, Who Watches the Watchers, where the Mentakins, who were a proto-Vulcan culture, um, they believed that Picard was a god, and again, it was because of someone who was resuscitated, uh, who was you know made well by by just simple medical technology, but to him it was magic. Mm -hmm. And when one of those uh, one of those people accidentally ended up on the Enterprise, it was an, uh, it was a woman, and uh, Picard was talking to her about how you know did your people always live in huts? Well, no, we used to live in live in caves. And then he said, did your people always use a bow and an arrow? Oh, well, well no, we, we, someone invented that. And Picard said, yeah, to you, a bow and arrow is a tool, but to someone from earlier who didn't, hasn't seen that invention, it's magic. Mm. So, gotcha. it, it, so it was like that. It, magic to them, to one, it was like magic. Science to another. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I only believe in science. I only believe in science. <laughs> not you, Libre. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Great Why do you movie. not to get the appetite? So, <laughs> a hero with scars. That rabbit trail was fun. Let's go. Let's come back though. So, yeah. that line from Vanko: "If you make God bleed, then people will not believe in Him." That is a very interesting counter perspective to the Christian worldview because 
in Christianity you have Jesus, the only leader of any major faith who number one claims to be God and then number two shows vulnerability. So in the incarnation of Christ he exhibits every form of human weakness. If you read through the Gospels you see he weeps outside the tomb of Lazarus, John 11, verse 35. Shortest <laughs> verse in the New Testament. Yeah. Two, two words, Jesus wept. He gets tired. He falls asleep in the boat in Mark chapter 4. Um, he hungers and thirsts, after his, obviously after his wilderness excursion there where he deals with Satan. And then on the cross, he says one of the sayings, John 19, 28, I thirst. He feels stress, Luke chapter 22. He's um, sweating profusely in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, of course, he bleeds and he dies. So that's very interesting because um, in Christianity you have a God, the God, who bleeds. And yet that vulnerability is what makes him unique because he's 100% God, 100% man. The Bible says he's able to sympathize with all of our human weakness yet without human sin. So interesting, when you come to the Gospels, you see that Jesus defeats the enemy not by a show of strength but through a show of weakness. So the weakness doesn't mean that he's not a hero. It's the way that God achieves victory. Um, and he dies on a cross. What greater display of weakness could there be than being humiliated, stripped, beaten, and killed publicly on a cross? I say that to point to the fact that Christianity is the only faith that I believe adequately deals with the problem of evil and suffering because you have a God through the person of Jesus Christ with scars. Yeah. He's the only one who enters into the great problem of human suffering and partakes in the pain and tastes death. And I find that to be a really uh, provocative thing that the villain thinks that this is the way that I will destroy the hero, I'll make him bleed, and then everybody will see that he's just a man. In Christianity, it's the very thing that brings upon our salvation. And that's mm -hmm. the way that God achieved victory over the enemy was by allowing himself to be vulnerable. So I thought that was a pretty interesting thing. You guys when want I feel to throw like anything there? It's, uh, it, it's a, um, and I mean this from a spiritual standpoint, it's a very human connection. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when we talk about how when, when Jesus lived his life on this earth, he lived... Uh, he lived a very real, very human type of life. And I, I mean that as in he, he had a childhood. He grew up. He, he worked a job. Right. Uh, he, he bled. He, he did everything that we physically can do. And I, I've always believed that part of why that happened was so that we can see that and know Kind of like what you were saying, Derek, that that we as as people, as just flesh and blood human beings, have that have that connection with uh, with a God who knows and who can sympathize what it is to be us, what it is to be just a flesh and blood human being, but a flesh and blood human being who is seeking Jesus, who is who is seeking uh, something something more than themselves. Mm -hmm. Come to seek and save the lost. That's what he says. Yeah. 
All right, one more connection. So the, this kind of piggybacks off the last one, and that's the theme of self-sacrifice, hmm. which is big in every superhero story, right? So in the first Avengers movie, there's this great clash that takes place between Iron Man, Tony Stark, and Captain America, Steve Rogers. And if you think about it, in many ways, Stark and Rogers are just total opposites. Not only in their origin, but in their ideologies and what makes them who they are. Different time periods. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Stark, think about this. He's a man with limitless resources. And yet, in the beginning of his story, he lacks the moral character to be a hero. Right? He has to discover that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Rogers is on the other end of that, who in the beginning, as you watch the first Avenger, here's a man with no resources, and yet he already possesses all of the moral qualities to be the hero. Yeah. He just needs the help of Mr. Stark yeah. to take him to the next level and turn him into the super soldier. A good man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this, these polar opposites. They're coming at it from, from different directions. So different perspectives on nearly everything. And one of the charges that's brought out in the first Avengers movie is that Steve Rogers tells Tony Stark that he doesn't have what it takes to be the hero. To make the sacrifice play. To make play. the sacrifice play, right? You remember that scene? Yes. In other words, he doesn't have the moral fiber to do what is necessary. I was just about to say it. Yeah. <laughs> so... We see Captain America do this in the, his first outing in the first Avenger, right? He takes the big um, German wing, the hydro flying wing, and he Puts dives it, in it into the North Pole, right, mm -hmm. to save the people of New York. Well, he even, like, jumps on that grenade and sac tries to sacrifice right, himself right. for yeah. everybody. Yeah. Oh, right. So it's not until the end of the first Avengers that we see Stark moving in that direction and making that big sacrifice flying through the wormhole. Yeah, he takes that nuke. Right, with the, in the yeah. Battle of New York, taking mm -hmm. the nuke into the city. And even though he, uh, we suspend our disbelief because he falls back through the wormhole, right, and he's fine and he lives to fight another day. But we see in that that, okay, he's finally discovered within him the ability to sacrifice, to willingly lay mm -hmm. down his life. And so... The payoff for that is, of course, the end game, right? At the very end, mm -hmm. where he puts on the, the gauntlet, the Infinity Gauntlet. And spoiler alert. Spoiler. <laughs> he just went the 10 years right. in the future. The, but as much snap. money as that movie's made, it's very likely that most everyone yeah. has already seen it. So the snap is interesting because it wipes Thanos and all his cronies out of mm -hmm. existence. Well, because he knew, because he knew that that was the only way that Thanos could be stopped, out of the, because he keeps on coming back somehow. Right, out of the seven some odd million, mm -hmm. what did what does Doctor Strange say? Uh, fourteen, like 14 million. million. Yeah. There was only one way. The only one. way that Tony had so, to sacrifice himself. So here's <laughs> the thing: the snap is the way to defeat the enemy, but it also is going to cost him his life, right? By the way, Thanos, if you don't know, that's a Greek word that means death. Just throw that out there. It's fitting. Very fitting. Um, and he, what does he say? That. What does he say in the movie? I'm inevitable. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right? One of his great lines. Yeah. Well, um, even so. in the comics, he was obsessed with death. Yeah. 
Right. So he wanted to impress death now, by killing. Now here's anyone. here's the gospel oh. connection. So that's the that's at the core of the gospel. Jesus says, "Greater love has no man than he to lay down his life for his friends." Um, John fifteen, he says that. So Jesus is the sin bearer. He's the Lamb of God who lays down his life for fallen humanity. He's the just one dying for the unjust. Um, but it's interesting, like I said, that Thanos, his name is Greek for death. And so the way that Tony defeats the embodiment of death is by giving his life. Mm. The way that Jesus defeats death for us is by giving his life. And, of course, then you have the resurrection mm-hmm. later on, three days later. Um, so I see that as a clear connection, too. Um, and of the 14 million some odd possibilities that we referenced, there was only one way, right? Tony had to sacrifice That's himself. Right. Yep. That was the only way that they could win yeah, against such a formidable enemy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, likewise with the gospel. Jesus there was, is the only way. There was only one way, mm-hmm. and the perfect sinless Son of God had to lay his life down for you and I in order to defeat the inevitability that comes to all of us, which is death. Yeah. So I think the the connections are just crystal clear there. Yeah. yeah. yeah and t- I, I see that. Yeah. Tony was definitely uh, he. You know, of course, he had to sacrifice himself to save his family and pretty much all of humanity. I mean, every every creature possible. He was. That's what he had to save. Mm-hmm. So there's an even deeper connection, though. So with the snap, right? It it reverses the curse so to speak right whatever reality has been placed upon earth and all those people who were wiped out of existence by the first snap the second snap right reverses all brings that. them back yeah okay it does nothing else but just bring brings them back also universe guy <laughs> so the deeper connection of the gospel is that's exactly why jesus died to reverse the curse of sin and death so through his sacrifice he is going to restore, redeem, and resurrect. So our whole world that's been blighted by sin and death and corruption, through Jesus' sacrifice and death, he's bringing about a total restoration of everything. So those who believe in him have eternal life. Um, he's going to restore the earth to an Edenic-like paradise that it was in the beginning. So the curse of sin will be rolled back just like the snap. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean... I don't know if they were reading the Bible when they started <laughs> formulating a lot of these storylines, but it's tr- taken directly or inspired mm-hmm. directly from the biblical text. But see, also also uh, Thanos, he wanted to, with his final snap, like the end, end game, he wanted to destroy everything and then basically what rebuild it, his own image. Right. Basically. So mm-hmm. he was he was pure death. Right there, he wanted to kill everything. Mm-hmm. You know, we started this uh, podcast today. We talking about Iron Man, Tony Stark, it, and he was definitely had his flaws. He was a flawed individual, and uh, Nathan had brought some awesome little visual cues, and I just seen in the corner of my eye one of the little. Uh, it, it's a very significant comic book he brought with us. It was a. Marvel Comics Iron Man number one twenty eight, and it was where Tony directly hobo Iron Man was uh, <laughs> he was facing his alcoholism. Yeah. Demon in a bottle. Interesting. Demon in a bottle. 
And see, that's actually what Iron Man 2 was loosely based off of. Really? Yeah, because if you notice, you know, he's he's dealing with that... Palladium poison. Palladium poison. And oh. so he's kind of just, hey, I'm going to die soon, so I'm just going to do whatever. Cause Live it knows, up. Yeah, he loses his company, and that's actually what happens in the comics, is he, he winds up, like, giving away his company because he, he's drunk most of the time in it, mm-hmm. and he just doesn't care. Just kind of living like tomorrow's not going to happen. Yeah. And so, and that's what happens in the movie is, you know, he's given up his company. He's given it to Pepper. He, uh, I mean, he's given, he lets Rhodey take his suit. And I mean, he's just. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that. Yeah. So one thing that I love about all of these Marvel movies and really all superhero movies is that, yeah, I mean, they're fun. They're an excursion. They're an escape. Love the special effects. Love the storytelling. It's great for kids, but. Man, you can take it so much deeper than that if you have the worldview and the foundation to be able to do that. And, um, you know, that's one thing that I'm looking forward to doing with my son, Daniel, as he grows older and gets more and more into watching movies and things like that, is helping him think through these things from a from a biblical perspective to see that, yeah, this is fun and it's it's great to, you know, have this big sandbox in the Marvel Universe where we can play in, but... Um, to notice that it has real connections to our faith. And uh, so we view the, the cinema through that lens, and our faith informs what we what we entertain ourselves with. It's funny you say that, Derek, because my dad is a pastor, and he uh, is in many ways single-handedly responsible for the, the passion that I have for stories like this, for... Uh, for what I love with Star Trek, for uh, for all the different things that I watch, and and I always felt he he never you know directly said that, but I I look back on it, and I I feel like he was that influence at that time, um, opening those doors for me to be interested in those things because he could see the same like what you see, in, in uh, looking back on it. Um, I, I feel like that is why I got into those things as a child was mm-hmm. partly because I just saw my dad watching those things and I would say, dad, I want to watch that. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, well sure here, I'll, I'll record it and you can watch it in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the rest was history. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Doug and Nathan, are, do we know anything about the future? I mean, we know what happened in Endgame, yes. but is there... Is there a future for for Iron, Iron Man, Man or no? Okay. I mean, at this point, the so it's nothing. He, okay, they're okay. not going to get Nicolas Cage to do a spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> There's some divergence here, <laughs> it, except for maybe some of the Disney Plus stuff that may be doing spinoff things. Like, yeah, yeah. They, I think from what there's one thing that they're going to do, they're going to do um, what ifs. Because that was a whole comic series oh. it was called What If, and it's going to be like an animated series on Disney Plus. Yeah. And apparently, from what I've been reading, Tony or well, Robert Downey Jr. is going to come back because uh, I guess they're going to be in an alternate What If universe or whatever, and he's going to come back and play uh, Tony Stark again, just for like the one episode, you know, make an appearance or whatever. But other than that, I mean, they, I think we're don't say it. 
It ain't over till it's over. It ain't over. <laughs> I ain't heard no bell. <laughs> um, but I, I do have some fast facts if you guys want some more. Yeah, let's hear a few. Okay. Go go ahead and read them off before I totally debunk your worldview on that. <laughs> um, let's see. Okay, actually, this is a pretty good one. Uh, for Iron Man 3, the director, uh, his name's Shane Black. Um, yeah, I guess I'm too far away from the microphone. <laughs> Lean forward, young man. Um, Shane Black, uh, he's the one that directed Iron Man 3. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Shane Black played Hawkins in Predator. The one with the glasses. Oh, my goodness. Oh, not that guy. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> Well, and when when Derek was bringing up the the bleeding part, I, I immediately thought back to Predator, where Schwarzenegger said, "If it bleeds, we can kill it." Yeah. How funny! I ain't got time to bleed. Uh, for you youngins out like there, an Alabama tick. For you youngins who haven't yeah, yeah. watched Predator, that movie is a masterpiece. You probably shouldn't go back and check it out. It's <laughs> on one of the streaming services, I'm sure. Well, you got one last fact for us there, Nathan. Um, let's see. I mean, this is, it's, it's kind of, it's not really has to do with Iron Man himself, but um, the, the woman that Tony was fighting in the restaurant in Iron Man 3, mm-hmm. um, her character is actually, I don't know if anybody knows this, but Man-Thing's ex-wife. And oh. Man-Thing is basically Marvel's version of Swamp Thing. Oh, but I remember Swamp Thing. Yeah, but her character is uh, actually helped create Man Thing. I mean, it, it was kind of just a cool Easter egg that they just threw in there because her mm-hmm. name is the same name as Man Thing's ex-wife. That's a deep cut, man. That's very, I mean, that's very <laughs> deep. Doug is chomping at the bit over here just to, to, to go ahead, say go ahead, something. Doug. Yeah, let's hear it, Doug. <laughs> okay. Speak, oh, toothless one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a mint? <laughs> okay, the um Okay, this is where I think they possibly could go, which is the if if they I think they'll do it cuz there's money there. So Iron Man. We all know the way through every single iteration movie in the MCU, you know, his suits have changed and his AI has changed. Went from Jarvis to uh, Friday. Friday, then Edith. Edith is who he gives to Peter Parker. Right. So the fact of like at the end of uh, Endgame when they're having you know spoiler, it's a funeral oh, service yeah. for Tony, and uh, he's talking to his daughter as mm-hmm. the AI. He's looking right at her. He walks, motions over to her. And, you know, there's several people that say just because he was talking directly to her, he was looking right at her, how would they know where to put her? You know, how would the AI know where to look? So, and even it's happened in the comics. In his last armor, the one that Doom had actually stolen, if he goes back to, no, it's 42, I'm sorry. 42, that rocket helped him. It, it can be controlled by a drone or an AI. So we saw him. He had the eyepiece on. So his, I believe, he downloaded his consciousness into an AI that's going to continue to help in the MCU. 
Which segues back to (laughs) (laughs) downloading our consciousness. Oh yes, because we talked about that previously as well. Yeah, there's some of that transhumanism. Transhumanism. Yeah, the transhumanism transfer your consciousness. So, it's I believe it's gonna happen. (laughs) Because <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. can do voiceovers forever If there's and, money oh, yeah, to be can. made They'll figure out a way yes. And as long as Robert Downey Jr. can deliver one-liners And as long as there's nerds in the world like us Oh yes oh, yeah. there It will us. live on It'll be like a Highlander warrior Just live forever <laughs> until you chop his head off <laughs> Okay, I got. Oh one, yeah Nathan what do you got Oh he's, 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 he's got bouncing something. up and down I found Here we go Last uh, fast fight. It's it's just kind of cool because of how it kind of connects the rest of the uh, Marvel movies to this, and even the X Men movies to this as well. Um, there's actually a deleted scene in Iron Man Two. I know it's a deleted scene, but it still counts. Uh, <laughs> um, in, Tony, in in the Star Trek world, we say it's canon. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's right when Tony discovers or rediscovers the element that his father kind of helped him discover in the model yes yes um he's telling um he he's basically mentions to start pulling all these different files and stuff like that so they can try to help discover this new element or help help create it and the first one he mentions is the pegas project which is from captain marvel that was the project help that she was in the plane, the Pegasus project. Oh, okay. The one that got shot down. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the other one is Goliath pro- uh, the, the Goliath project, which is Giant Man from Ant-Man and Wasp. And there's a very clear biblical yes. uh, connection. And then the last one is um, Exodus which is uh, a secret shield project working on mutants. Another biblical name. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of it's kind of cool how they're tying it all together. How interesting. So go dig up the deleted scene and check that out. Yeah, the deleted <laughs> scenes contain lots of wisdom all throughout different movies. Well, we are so um, so glad that you listen to us and uh, to listen to the inner light project once again for our second episode Uh, and hopefully in a few weeks time we'll have a new one up where we will once again tackle on another nerd pop culture type of uh, topic Um, and just to close out uh, because this is from a Christian standpoint and we are four guys who go to church together um, we would like to personally if any of you that are ever listening to this invite you to uh, to to explore a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the four of us sitting here can, can attest to how that has changed our lives and made us all better men and our friendships with each other have in turn made us better for that. And uh, if, you're, if you're ever wanting to explore that, uh, we, we certainly encourage you to, to do so and to explore that relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, but again, we just thank you so much for listening to the Inner Light Project and uh, we are so looking forward to to, to our to our next podcast uh, which will hopefully be coming up in just a couple of weeks or so so again thank you for listening and god bless you